I was bullied and I probably also having grown up in a really safe and secure and loving place um, it was it was really confronting I then graduated into the recession that we had to have and a lot of people were losing their jobs at the time and three days before Christmas I received a letter saying we've had to lay people off and it's you were one of the last people we appointed you're the first off the boat and so that was my Christmas present you no longer have a job and that was such a blessing because I ended up doing what I never intended or thought I would do. Hi, I'm Nick Fleming and I'm a business leader, strategist, mentor and author and I help to enable genuine progress amidst complexity. I tackle the issues that matter with the people who care and in this podcast I have the great opportunity to share some reflections about my career journey, my childhood, uh, some challenges, and perhaps some life lessons learned along the way. So, let's not keep you waiting any longer and turn through the pages of this open diary. I hope you are listening. Nick, you're a father, an ex-lecturer in engineering, a business owner and director. But I'm really keen to remove all these titles just aside for a minute. Who is Nick Fleming? Oh, look, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I mean, I suppose if you, if you sort of think about what's my, my background, I, I came from a really, um, what I thought was really normal family. And it was been one of those interesting discoveries for me through life is what I thought was really normal, almost cliche normal, is really abnormal. Like it's, so, um, you know, I was, is a very, probably, you'd maybe call it middle class, sort of Adelaide family. It was very secure. Um, it was stable. It was loving. And, and actually on reflection, it was maybe even a bit sheltered, you know, and, um, and I thought that was normal. Uh, and, you know, my father was an accountant and, and in fact, all, so many of my relatives are accountants. So I think I had to do something different to that. Um, uh, and my mum sort of managed the home front. So it was that really typical sort of family unit, um, a small family. I've only got one brother. He's a few years older than me. And it was a very, you know, I've come out as a very family orientated existence. Um, although one was quite community, community orientated too. So my father's always been really involved in Rotary and very active within the community. So, and again, that was something I just thought was really you know, this is what happened, you know, I didn't pay much attention to it. And, um, and so certainly it's probably later I've sort of reflected on maybe how that shaped who I am as well. So, um, but, you know, all very public, you know, public schooling and, um, uh, and you know, I went to, went to university, but again was, was one of the few people in our family who'd been to university. So there was no that prior experience shaping so it's sort of been really interesting reflecting upon that and sort of thinking about so what has shaped me and um and so i think it is probably in many ways just those fundamental values you grow up with and you don't notice it's like that fish swimming in the water you don't notice the water uh and so actually it's it's even moments like this where you have a chance to have chat about it you reflect upon these things and go it's sort of it's sort of interesting as to what actually these things that you know make you who you are was there a particular experience that had a significant impact on you? Uh, look, I've had, a, I mean, a lot of different experiences, and particularly, I think, during the post-university sort of period. Um, and on reflection, I think it's probably that classic case that all, all the challenges are what define you. And so for me, you know, I've had a number of sort of really pivotal moments. Um, and I think, uh, and, and one of them in a way was, um, if I sort of think back to on it, some of the worst moments are the most profound. So um, we didn't always, we didn't talk about mental health issues back when I was going through primary school, but you know, my probably the last year of my primary school was one of the toughest years of my life. I mean, I had, um, I was bullied and I probably also having grown up in a really safe and secure and loving place um it was it was really confronting 
uh, because it was one of those experiences of like, why does this happen? And it's happening to me. Um, and probably the best thing to think about is I survived it. Uh, my wife would probably tell me I probably still need to do some work on that, you know. Um, but that also led into going into uh, the high school I went to was almost like you describe as one of the best of the worst. I had three choices at the time. You know, you couldn't sort of go anywhere. You had you lived in a like a catchment and there were high schools in your catchment and you went to one of those. So I ended up going to what seemed to be, you know, three bad options and chose the best of the bad. Um, and so that was really challenging too in so far as um, it was a tough school. And But I also think what, on retrospect, there was two really key things I learned out of that. One is that even in that tough environment where a lot of people struggled, um, hard work paid off and you could still succeed in that environment. Um, and that allowed me then to go on to university and and to be fair, most of the people that went through that environment, schooling environment didn't. I think the other thing though, is in, again, in hindsight, it, it enabled me to connect with people from lots of different walks of life. And at that point, it was probably about survival. Like, you know, you just need to get through school and keep your head down a bit and, you know, not become too much of a target for, for the environment you're in. But actually, I did manage to connect with people from lots of different backgrounds in ways sometimes that were unexpected but made it actually a pretty interesting schooling experience so and that set me so i think set myself up well again to to connect with people across lots of different work and professional environments uh in a way that's sort of genuine and i think you know most people are great people um, and and that sort of being genuine or authentic gets reciprocated. So so that was good. Um, I did. Uh, I went into engineering. Um, that that in itself was a bit of a mystery. Um, as I said, most of my relatives were accountants, and at the time, I I really didn't have a lot of role models to say, well, you know, how do you choose? Uh, a profession and do you even choose a profession and so my brother was probably the most immediate and relevant example he sort of went through um, chose to do economics um, and I looked around and said you know what interests me and um, I read the the um, careers guide and I think I, I think I got bored because I, I, I think I only read up to about a and I love this thought of anthropology or archaeology or architecture. And they were the things that really captured my imagination. But when I looked into them, it's like, nah, the job prospects there are pretty bad. So there's then this thing called engineering. And I did a little bit of work experience in those areas and found, hey, this is really cool. This, is, um, this sort of really interests me. Uh, and so I chose engineering. And having said that, and I enjoyed the course, I actually think I just love learning. So I sort of actually, in hindsight, tend to think that maybe I could have chosen a variety of things because that interest in learning actually was what was being fulfilled. And in a way, I've actually come back to things like you know, anthropology. And it's, a, it's one of the curious things that I now observe more about how, where my energy goes and I, I'm seeing connections back to things that probably are my true self uh, in following that energy. So, so many things to unpack there, Nick. But I just want to go back to the bullying part. It, 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 yeah. I was, I myself was bullied at school, but my the, the reason I was bullied was I was, I was from a, a different race. I yep. was in a country, but I was very, I was, I was in a standout within the students where he's not one of us. And so I'm curious to know, like, why do you think you were bullied at school? And following up that, that you used, you said the lesson that hard work pays off even in the hard environment, even in mm. the hard environments. Was that uh, a perspective you developed while, while at school or is something that you reflect back on and you're like, all right, my hard work, regardless how hard the environment was, paid off? Yeah. 
Uh, I think sort of on the bullying front, uh, to this day, it's a bit perplexing to know quite why that happened. Um, probably, I'd say maybe I was an easy target. Um, it, and again, I think it was also um, friendships evolve and change. Uh, we also know that in all school groups and all communities, tribes form. And I think I just sort of, a moment in time, it, attention turned to me and that seemed to be the, you know, I seemed to be the target. Um, and I suppose for me, that was also just realising that I had to learn how to cope with that. Um, and I think that also fed then into my decision, and it was, I think, actually a decision going into high school that I'm going to take responsibility for how I relate to people because I want to craft that relationship rather than have somebody else dictate it for me. And so probably because that I got on the front foot a bit more, I probably became a bit more self-deprecating. Um, and to a certain extent, worried a little bit less about it. And I think at the end of the day, I, I, I still think this is true for a lot of people too, that at the end of the day, People people appreciate others who are authentic. They don't. You don't have to agree with them. You don't always even have to like them. But I think people see and appreciate authenticity. And so I think that was you know. And I, I would probably I couldn't have articulated that this way then. But I think that was what I was learning. Um, I think on the hard work front, that was more something I saw around me. You know, it was one of those things I thought was normal. Again, you know, I saw in my uncles and my father and my aunts and, you know, they just worked hard um, and that seemed to be the thing you did. I think also, despite going to very sort of average schools, the, I, I did have the benefit of having some teachers who encouraged us, encouraged us and, and also themselves show passion. I think that's the classic thing, isn't it? That when people have passion for something, it's infectious. And so I had some teachers too who encouraged that application. And I suppose out of that, I saw this is this this seems to get success. This seems to be useful. So it's probably just this combination of things too. It's just where you apply yourself. And I never had high expectations as well. And I don't know why. Again, it's one of those things you reflect on and say, well, I, I just didn't necessarily expect anything and what happened, happened. And at the end of high school, doing my exams, I actually did really well. I was like, and it was, it was literally was a surprise. It's like, wow, that seemed to go pretty well. Now I've got a choice to do pretty much whatever I want um, in terms of choice of uni course. And, but that was useful too, because then it meant, well, I think I want to do engineering, but I could do anything. And so it was that moment of having to reflect and saying, no, hang on, what resonates with me? I think it is still engineering. Let's go down that path. Love that, Nick. I'm really, really curious about your take on education more broadly and not in the education systems per se and to look at it from that lens but more what does education mean to you and why do you think you actually pursued further studies whether it was anthropology or engineering what what was your impetus to actually continue was it just looking around you and working out this is the norm or you had a bigger vision in mind you know at the time and you thought that is the most optimal path forward is i just go to uni and i get a job yeah so i think at the time, so this is this is late eighties, early nineties, and I think at the time, the narrative was that in order to do well, you probably needed to get a university degree, and I, I think that's really shifted now. I think there's a a really broad recognition that uni will work well for some people, and trades will work for well for others, and you can succeed really well on a whole variety of paths in life but i think at that time it was that sense that um we needed more professionals and doing some level of tertiary um, education was valuable so to that extent i think i that was the narrative and you know at that point in time okay this is sort of what we do um i'd also developed a 
I suppose, thinking about engineering, a bit of a passion for building things. And I think this reflect goes back even to my early childhood. And, you know, all of us love um, Lego and and um, I was always loved drawing and, and almost what you'd call probably designing. I just love that sort of idea. And I'd gone into engineering thinking I'd love to be behind some of the, you know, the skyscrapers and the big... Um, constructions that shape our communities and that play you know visible roles and tangible practical roles and it wasn't again until probably later in my education at university that again was exposed to different aspects of engineering and actually had a moment of choice where i could have gone down a more conventional structural engineering path but i also had a um a lecturer and mentor who introduced me to water resources and hydrology uh, and that actually started to pique a really different interest in me which was not around physical objects but systems and that's really proved in retrospect to be quite a pivotal moment because i said I'm going to explore this thing called water resources and systems, which became ecosystems and catchments and communities and found real um, interest in the additional dimensions that that sort of both science and engineering exposed um, that really has been pivotal because I then graduated into the recession that we had to have. So I graduated in 1992 and a lot of people were losing their jobs at the time. Most, all of, officially all of my final year class had to go to Asia to find work. I was fortunate that I had been offered a job. And three days before Christmas, I received a letter saying, we've had to lay people off and it's you were one of the last people we appointed, you're the first off the boat. And so that was my Christmas present. You no longer have a job. And that was such a blessing because i ended up doing what i never intended or thought i would do and that was postgrad because i managed to get a scholarship and so this is remember this is 1992 30 years ago a generation ago and i ended up choosing to do study around how do you develop systems, city-scale systems of infrastructure that are sustainable? And at a time, that was a still, for many people, particularly in the traditional professions, that was a bit of a weird green lefty idea, this whole sustainability stuff. And But to connect the concept of developing systems, the, the philosophical perspective of sustainability as well as then I did work around um, decision-making where I worked with people within government, within treasury and planning around engineering systems and built form and then engaged with communities about what their values and aspirations were to bring those things together. I also had an opportunity to work with um, artificial intelligence in 1992, neural networks to do modelling. Um, so climate change, looked at the climate change and the dynamics of changing climates and factored that in. So it set me up, I think, for you know, a lot of the other aspects of the stuff I'm doing today, both in terms of ways of thinking um, around systems, around different value sets, different ways of knowing, around the, the use of models and technology, about how we go about making decisions in complex environments. So it was one of those, you know, challenges. I don't have a job, and it's actually been such a, it, I mean, such a blessing in terms of all the opportunities it gave me, and really broadened so much beyond the engineering degree. I mean, I have people sometimes today saying, "Oh, clearly you're an economist," or "No, clearly you're a planner," or you know, I'm saying, "No, no, no," you know, my core core degree is in engineering. Nick, you had a step. You've you've you you have had a stellar career. Can you give us a quick summary of it? Yes. So I, um, after I started my PhD, I actually worked part time. I wouldn't suggest that to anyone. Not even my worst enemy. Don't 
don't do a PhD part time. It's tough, um, and it's really hard to hold down any relationships while you're doing that. So I worked uh, for about five or six years a consultancy in Adelaide. A lot of actually environmental assessment and rehabilitation, and did a lot of work with the Department of Defence um, on defence sites in terms of rehabilitating uh, defence sites. I then had an opportunity to move to Melbourne and did more work for around about a decade in um, natural resource management and water systems and water natural resources around Australia. And uh, that was a phenomenal experience too, working with communities around Australia, different landscapes, different political systems or different political arrangements. Um, and uh, Along that journey, I was both managing projects, but then running um, operations, so growing a business uh, to provide sort of professional services. And um, along in that path, also got to another sort of crisis moment. Um, but that crisis moment pivoted into uh, having an opportunity to have a global role around leading technology and innovation uh, for business globally. And that then led on to several years effectively leading change in a global professional services firm who say, how do we bring this idea of sustainability into everything that we do and all the services that we provide, um, which was really about leading change and strategy. Uh, that, uh, that was several fantastic years working around the world on, on that front with a great team of people. And then um, we sold that business and I decided to change career tack saying that's been the first 25 so years of my career. I reckon the next 25 years should be different. And so I just chose to leave and I didn't have a plan. Uh, but I also had teenage kids. So I thought it would be useful for me and for them to see me do something different in a world that was really rapidly changing, the way of work was rapidly changing. And um, and I was, to be let me be fair, I was in a fortunate position where I had the ability to make that decision, you know, and I respect a lot of people don't, and I, I was in that fortunate position to be able to go out and say, you know, if, if I don't know what I'm doing for 12 months, that's okay. But the reality was it was sort of like about 12 weeks and, <laughs> and you know, new opportunities emerge. So today um, I'm on the board of South Gippsland Water, which is a public water utility in Victoria. I'm the chair and national president of Engineers Australia. Uh, and I'm on faculty with the ANZ School of Government, which is like effectively the university for the executive ranks of government around Australia and New Zealand. You touched on a good point around having the option. I, I was listening to a podcast the other day and, and the, the host said, the goal of life is not freedom. The goal of life is not happiness. The goal of life is having options to do the things you want to do when, when the time comes. And I think you, you explained that very well. We had the option to do what you wanted at a time. And I think as we go forward in life, that's one of the things we want to have options to do different things when we get to a, end of a road and you're like, I want to explore other options and having that option is important. I um, heard another thing yesterday that said that most high performing individuals are just ordinary people that achieved one thing and sacrificed everything else. Um, so you are very clearly high performing individual, Nick. Uh, what do you think you've sacrificed? to get where you are today? I certainly sacrifice some time with family. And I think, you know, a lot of a lot of people do that. But again, I would say I've been incredibly fortunate to have a very supportive family to allow that to happen. Uh, that was part of my choice, though, to change and to, and to take on a different role because it was a time when I decided that's what I wanted to choose to do was to be around for my kids at you know their teenage years. Um, I suppose I don't know. Like we always talk about, you know, you've made this choice, but what have you given up? And and in some ways, it's impossible impossible to answer because you don't know. It's sliding doors, isn't it? You don't know what that other alternative would have been. I think though, to the point you about, you know. Um, 
it's about having options. One of the things I've also learned, and I think I've helped other people to think about this too, is every day we make a choice. And that choice can be passive or active. And I think so many of us feel that we have limitations and constraints about what we're able to do. I remember working with a, uh, a colleague once and she said, look, I'm in this role at the moment and I feel really lucky to have been given this role, but it, it doesn't it doesn't excite me and I'm not sure I'm doing really well, but there's this other role that I think I'd be great at. And she said, but do you think, you know, how do, how do I deal with this? And I said, well, have you gone and just had a conversation? Just said, tell them what you told me. I don't think I'm performing well at this role. I think I could perform better at this other role. And don't ask, can I do this other role? Go and ask, how could it be possible for me to shift from the role I'm doing to this other role? And what was pivotal in that conversation for her was that that was even possible to have that conversation. I said, well, it's just a choice. Like, it's everything's, it's, it's a possible. What's impeding you is the assumption that it's not possible. So we finished the conversation, we were having a coffee. She went back to the office later that afternoon. She went and had the conversation. She came straight back to me and said, I'm moving to this new role. <laughs> and so I think this is so true for all of us is, is that there are so many, um, assumptions and in fact there's some work done by uh keegan and lay who are two hard professors of what they call hidden commitments we have so many assumptions or things that we're more committed to sustaining as in i'm committed to sustaining the fact that i look competent in my work or i'm committed to sustaining uh, a safe environment or something that feels safe for me that i'm not prepared to take a different choice we all have choices uh, we have more choices than we realise. And I think the difference between people who seem to have more successful careers, and again, success is a very subjective thing, um, probably just face into those choices more. And they're a bit more overt about saying, you know, I've got a choice here. What choice am I prepared to make? So there is another school of thought, Nick, around... In life, you need to choose your regrets. Mm, so yeah. Making decisions, um, either way you go, a question that you should ask yourself, I'm talking in general, um, that if I make this decision, can I live with the regret of the making decision? And it seems to have, it, it is helping me with my making a lot of my decisions, and I'll put myself in the crossroad a few times. And I've only been recently exposed to this, and I'm like, okay, this this makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's it's an interesting. It's a re, again, it's a really interesting notion, and I've I've always been a little bit reluctant to take on new roles, and sometimes people just look at me and say, "What? Like, you've been offered this opportunity? What is your problem?" I think I'm very loyal. So I'm often very loyal to the people I'm working with and work that I'm doing. And to be frank, I'm also self-doubting. And I think that's increasingly become a constructive self-doubt insofar as, you know, the classic thing, the more you know, the more you realise you don't know. And so, um, but what I've also learned is when you put yourself in the environment that you want to be in, opportunities emerge. And it's always that case of, you know, I'm perhaps I'm doing this current job, I'd really love to be doing another job, but I have to wait till the opportunity comes along. So no, 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 don't wait for anything. It's not gonna come. You know, you have to make a choice to start to put yourself into that new space, that new environment, that new information, start reading, start connecting, and you'll be surprised what happens. And so I think what I've also discovered more is once you start to follow both the op the opportunities that actually bring you joy and that sounds very um self-centered it can be very self-centered but it's no it's more what i'm being is more authentic what opportunities that really resonate with you and that really get a spring in your step and this energy and excitement grab them because who do people want to work with 
They want to work with people who are enthusiastic about the work they're doing, who are curious and passionate to learn, who throw energy and positivity into their work. That breeds opportunity. You know, when you do a few things well and when you're doing the things you love, then others look at that and say, oh, I want to be part of that or I want that person to be part of my organisation. And so it, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think it's more about um, that's where I've become more a sense of opportunities seem to present themselves rather than chasing them when you're doing stuff you love and you do it well and you also seek to do it in a way that helps genuinely helps others when you focus on helping yourself you know that's um people see that too and it and it's i think that closes opportunities when you're genuinely interested in enabling progress for others and with others again that just breeds opportunity it's so rewarding um i think it's a, it's a good life nick i would love to circle back to something you pointed out which is very interesting constructive self-doubt and then i reflect on your career but also the part that you did not mention i think earlier was you've written a book smashing the state of dumbstuck right yeah, which kind of I think beautifully captures lots of the conversations uh, we've had today, and kind of explains your career in a way. But really curious about that initial seed of doubt around how are we doing things today, and what was your impetus to write that book on a more personal level? You know, what what were you like in a way hoping to achieve with it? But how do you think it can actually personally touch? individuals because ultimately what we're talking about here is people right yeah. whether in large small organizations systems whatever it may be we're talking about people and how are you looking to connect with different people around the world and how do you think that could slowly just have that sliding door moment as you mentioned yeah earlier? look it's a dangerous question i mean because i could talk about this for hours so we know i don't know we don't have hours but a moment i had uh, and it was actually once in South America and I was talking with a client and it, we were talking about the opportunity in this project to do it much smarter, much more cost effectively. And I've seen these opportunities and actually also worked with teams on these things around the world. And, and we, in the space of days, we could sometimes de-risk a project. We could save, you know, on a, on a major project, a billion dollars, $2 billion projects, we could save 10 or 20%. And, and I started to realize that these are opportunities that are around us everywhere. They're everywhere. And this, and it's not just in Australia or not just in Chile, it's not just in Scotland. There's a human thing going on here that's impeding us fulfilling our potential that also translates in a very tangible way into the money we spend and also the money we could save. And so really, I think this, the, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I think our progress as a society is not is is connected with technology, yes, but it's not about technology. You know, technology won't impede our progress. The real challenge we have is how to make progress humanly possible. And what I mean by that is, if you think about it, all of our organisations are purely human constructs. They're purely a representation of our ideas. And we are actually the same as individuals. We are merely a reflection of the ideas and the beliefs and the assumptions that we hold. Now, the power in that is that if that's true and, it's, and, our, and ideas and assumptions can change, then so can everything else. So can we as individuals in who we become and how we grow and develop, but so can our organisations, so can our institutions, so can our communities, our economy. And I actually think we're at a pivotal point or, or you know, era in history that is truly pivotal. Uh, and, I, and I can't have tough time, enough, enough time to explain all the reasons why, but it was this motivation of this book of saying, I think systemically we are solving the wrong problems in the wrong way, and I want to prove to you why. And the power in that too is the return on investment of, of realizing that is immediate. 
Because if you actually start to say, hang on, are we solving the right problem here? And even if you get a one or a two percent improvement in framing what the what the what the problem is in a more constructive way or understanding it more fully, all of the flow of investment and effort and time that goes beyond that is immediately more productive. And you think about that scaled up across a community or an organization or an economy, it is vast in its potential. And so that's why I think we have this massive untapped human potential because we've been captive to a set of ideas that at, that at one point in time may and probably have been useful, but almost certainly are not always useful anymore. And I think part of the challenge we have in society and our organisations and this complexity and, and the sort of uncertainty and the volatility is because we're butting up against a reality that the ideas that have shaped out the way our economy works and the way our organisations work are proving not to be useful anymore. And we're in this search to make progress. And at the moment, we're doing it, I think, with an, uh, an arm tied behind our back and, and with a blindfold on. And so part of my reason of, of both writing the book, but also the work that I'm currently working on now is to bring greater visibility and coherence to what are the ways that we need to think about and approach these challenges. Because when we can name them and look at them and interrogate them together, rather than just being competing ideas between, between within our heads and between heads, and you can get them out and look at them, we're in a much more powerful position to then deal with them, to collaborate around them, to interrogate them, to make better choices. As you can see, I'm passionate about this stuff. Quick one, can you please take a second and follow us on any platform you're listening from? It will help more than you know. Thank you. Let's say yes. uh, someone someone named Daniel is listening to this podcast right now. Mm. Can you summarize your book into how to steps for Daniel? Yeah, so I think look, I think the one one fundamental question you have to ask is are we solving the right problem? I mean, that's the first thing you've just got to ask. And I think the other thing is ask it within a group. It's I think it'd be very revealing if you permit a group to authentically ask and explore that question, you probably be quite surprised at what people are prepared to offer about you know whether they think we're dealing dealing with the right problem. I think the second thing that's really important to understand is that at the end of the day, all of our problems are actually human. So if you get down to the real root cause of all of our problems, they're human in nature. And what I mean by that is, they're framed by the ideas that we have or the beliefs that we hold. Because everything else emerges from that. Our, our choices, our actions, the things we choose to do or not to do, the way we choose to deal with people around us, what to set up an organisation, it's all a function of our ideas and beliefs. And when you can interrogate those, you may find that at least some of them, once you can actually name them, you go to yourself, wow, is that what I actually believe? I'm not sure I believe that anymore. And that's a little bit scary, but it's incredibly um, empowering to say, wow, if I was, what, what would be a more useful idea? And so I think that's another really key piece uh, around the problem solving. I think the other one too is that we fundamentally misunderstand complexity and complex problems and the way that we need to deal with them. We treat a lot of problems almost as like a machine that needs to be optimised. You know, we have problems around our, around our education system, getting good educational outcomes. So we have to optimise this machine in terms of inputs and outputs and how we measure it. And it's not a machine. It's a complex adaptive system that requires a very different way of understanding its nature and therefore how to interact with that. Uh, and the perception there too is often that if it's a complex problem, it needs a complex response. You know, it must need lots of different actions and people involved. And that's actually also not true. Um, and one of the very empowering understandings is 
although uh, any system, justice system, education system, um, or an organisation is also a system, has lots of moving parts, not all of them really state how, how, how that works. You can usually get back to some really core dynamics, which are usually shaped by a core set of beliefs that, that actually dictate how everything occurs. And so you can intervene at those at key points and you shape, you know, you tweak the way, for example, an idea, you change an idea. And one of the things actually we've done in, uh, at Engineers Australia over the past uh, 18 months is we've just brought a much stronger focus to how are we delivering outcomes with impact? That's what we're here to do. And just that idea, as people start to actually think about that idea of, well, how are we delivering an outcome and what is the outcome we're aiming to deliver and what would we need to do for that to be impactful, it changes a lot of thinking. It changes a lot of choices. It, the energy starts to flow in different directions and people start to get excited and they opt into that and say, oh, I want to be, I want to be part of that. And it wasn't a structural change. You know, it wasn't a, it, it wasn't training lots of people. It was actually shaping an idea that had greater resonance and that people started to see value in. Nick, I'm very, very tempted to ask this question. And if you can summarize it in three phrases, what are the top three things you reckon Daniel can take from the book and apply to their life on a more personal level? I think the professional front is crystal crystal clear. Could you translate that to life? You mentioned dynamic adaptive system, not really just a complex machine life. Yeah, exactly, not a machine. And how you respond to different you know, events in life, your choices, how you reflect on them. Um, or is that really your force footing it? What are your thoughts? Look, I think, I think the first thing that I've learned and try to practice, and that is compassion. And that might sound really weird, really left field, like where's that come from? And for me, the more I've understood the, how we as individuals are shaped by our experiences and the belief structures that we form and the ideas that we carry and the knowledge that we we gain through our training it's just reinforced to me that we are we are each the product of those things and it doesn't make us right or wrong or better or worse but it does make each of us different and unique and so i suppose i just take into that now a much greater sense for each individual that I deal with or a group that I deal with that these are valuable and these are valuable and worthy people I may not agree with them but that's also from my lens and what's most important is that I understand my lens and I understand theirs and we determine how we can do something useful together but that takes compassion for yourself and it actually takes compassion for others so that's that would be the first personal suggestion I think I'd make. The the other one is um, what I've learned through actually looking at the neuroscience and the behavioural sciences too is that we all develop over time in our personal journeys, but the moments that we develop the most is when we're challenged. And it's actually the most, it's actually almost the moments of crisis when we don't know how to deal with the circumstances that we've been presented. And it might be a neck, it might be a really frightening period, or it might just be, I've just been given a job. I don't know how to do. They are the moments in which we learn the most. And you actually can, you, physiologically, our brains change. We actually, we evolve in the in the neural wiring that allows us to deal with more complex topics and so the so what out of that is be comfortably uncomfortable if you want to develop as a person find that space where you're always just a bit uncomfortable because there you'll be constantly developing you'll be constantly evolving 
and um and also the evidence shows that actually people who are often really successful do unexpected things that people go why did they do that that seem to be really successful um these people actually get great rewards in life and it's it, it evolves from that richness of experience so part of that simple thing is even just read widely just expose yourself to stuff that means you have to think about it to interpret it and say what does this mean how do i add this into my i you know i don't even have a little hook in my brain to add this onto so you start forming some hooks um i think the th and I, I think the third thing i just i just suggest out of that is um is to be as i came back to this earlier point be helpful and I think that's again really reciprocated. I find when I'm dealing with a lot of my clients, what they say to me is, "You challenge me, but you do it in a way that I genuinely believe you have my back." So it doesn't mean to be passive. It doesn't mean to be nice, but it does mean to say, "I'm genuinely wanting to help you make progress." how can i actually help you to do that in a way that is good for you and good for what you're trying to achieve and i think in doing that that's also very demanding on yourself as an individual to think about how do i do that you know what does that take how do i how do i help this person not just even in terms of the like, technical content whether it's you know finance or engineering or whatever it is but actually how do i help this person and I think that, you know, again, is a real challenge that supports your own development, as well as people saying, you know, you authentically want to help me, and I value that, and I want more of that. Okay. Nick, we have a, a closing uh, tradition in the podcast. The previous guest has left you a question. Oh, um, right. Yeah. For someone who is in their earlier stages of their career and they're inspired to be high performing, be a, be a person that has a, like wants to make an impact, what what advice do you have for them? Part of my advice is don't be in too much of a rush. And the reason I say that is, as an employer. If I see CVs and I see somebody's changed job every about a year or 18 months, I would often overlook that person. And the reason being is when you're in a job, usually the first 12 months or so, you sort of, it's in a bit of a honeymoon period. You're learning how to do things and it's in early days. And very often you haven't really hit the real challenges that other learning moments in that role and i think when you find people who've spent maybe two and three or four years in a role or organization that's when you really start to get a sense for how an organization works what its challenges are um, what makes it tick and where the problems are that's when you start to really learn so i think a lot of younger people seem to be in a real hurry they're just desperate to put more notches on that sort of career belt and i think there's a risk in that that ultimately um they'll get found out because that experience they'll gain along the way will actually be shallow the cv might have lots of lots of roles on it but when you scratch the surface and say where's the depth where's the critical thinking where's the experiences in tackling unusual challenges that increasingly is going to be valued and important i think that's where the risk is that it's it, the experience is found to be shallow and that will ultimately be harmful to their careers and their satisfaction i think what do you think what do you think is the reasoning behind the rush uh, look i think we live in a world where um, we're constantly bombarded with people who are sharing their most successful moments and that's all you see um and i think there's a sense of if i'm not being basically successful every day then i'm failing and 
in fact, I'd be, as, as you've actually shown an interest in, is when did you fail? I think that's such a powerful narrative and discussion that we should be having more from a perspective of, and that's good, that's healthy, that's normal. Um, and when you fail, the, the moments of joy and excitement are all the sweeter. You know, it's we need contrast in our lives, and that's real. And I think too, there's too much projection of right and wrong and success or failure in blacks, black and white terms that isn't healthy and it's not real. Can I agree more? Nick, we have a, a closing uh, tradition in the podcast. The previous guest has left you a question. Um, oh, yeah. If you had to invent two or three rules of life, what would they be? Well, one would be one would be kind. Be kind to yourself and others. I think one would be um, love learning. And sorry, a big pause probably doesn't help you, does it, in your podcast? <laughs> um, I'm trying to capture a thought here too, which of the book from um, uh, Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, and as a he said in that that basically you only know the purpose of your life at the end. And I think that's such a, you know, so um, probably then the other third, the other third one is um, be helpful. Oh, goosebumps, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> So hopefully the, the cumulative a cumulative life of being helpful would be a good life and one that's really rewarding. Mm. Thank you so much, Nick. It has lots been a pleasure. Of, lots of learnings, Nick. I, I was actually taking notes of the whole podcast um, and just looking at the recap. Top three things to apply personally from the book you've written. One's compassion. Two's expose yourself and get used to the idea of being comfortable, you know, be comfortable, be uncomfortable, and three is be helpful and be of service to those around you. Um, I think these three lessons are just beautiful. Love it. Good. Well, thanks for the opportunity, guys, because I, as I said, it's I genuinely, um, you know, the, it, it's I find this really valuable because, it's again, it forces me to have to reflect and discern things about my life that you don't ever get you don't ever really sit down to do because nobody makes it's you got other things to do so you know this has been a real um this has been really useful for me too so thank you our stories are the building blocks of who we are and we hope this episode was the right trigger to reflect on your stories and how they made you who you are thank you for listening please follow us on whatever platform you are hearing this from. Until the next Open Diary.